Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time and thanks to Chris. It's coming up. It's just about turning into four o'clock. Today, part one of Cuba, a history with Professor Barry Carr from the Latin... La Trobe University Latin American Institute. Part two of the talk by Dr. Judith Smart talking about the role of women in the anti-conscription campaign during World War I here in Melbourne. The monthly report from the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War with Dr. Margaret Beavis. Issues relating to genetically modified organisms with Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network. Pacific Islands Forum coming up in a couple of weeks. We're talking about that and related issues with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, let's see how he's had, what he's doing, doing over the last week, what he's been looking at. A week, Jane Lister, when following our justified hate last week of those who won't let us hate those we hate, or, or at least to say so, congratulations to that brave fighter for liberty, for freedom, for righteousness, liberal caring business class, when you're not caring business class, Senator David Lying Helm, for declaring hate is a human right, a civil right, that people we spit vitriol at can only be hurt and offended if they feel hurt and offended, and that has nothing to do with us spitting that vitriol, we lovers of human rights, it's their own fault which is another reason why we hate them, they're too bloody sensitive bringing us to those we can and must all hate, apart from evil unions and lazy avaricious workers and Islamic terrorists which potentially is all Muslims those we must hate, the evil enemy the people, our brave young men and women in uniform, life of the party great fun to be with, trained killers are brainwashed, sorry, ordered trained to hate, so they won't feel so bad about killing them and slaughtering the civilians and wedding parties who, like Muslims, are all potential killers, likely to react violently to our invasion, which is for their good, their liberation, but which they're too stupid to see. And I thought the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin editorial Thursday was being most unpatriotic with its headline, Violent Men Now on Notice. And I thought, how dare the Wapping Sin attack our Vietnam trained killer invader heroes and side with the Vietnamese government, which thinks former invaders coming back to celebrate their invasion and slaughter and destruction is a bit ordinary. But thankfully, it turned out they weren't the violent men elsewhere where we learnt rightfully they were heroes and how dare the evil Vietnamese government imply we are historical revisionists by in turn implying we defeated the evil Vietnamese on behalf of the good Vietnamese. Well, more on behalf of or under the instruction from the US of the UN of the US of the world when everyone knows that brave giant mind US of hero Rambo won the war single 
single-handedly, thanks to the evil Vietnamese being so stupid, running one by one into his arsenal, screaming vile hatred after missing him at point-blank range while he never missed, while the good Vietnamese learned from Rambo how to be good Vietnamese, because without the advice of the US of, they would have had no idea how to be obedient, obsequious Vietnamese, which is synonymous with the good bit, making hate even more problematic because there were evil Vietnamese, we had to hate the evil enemy, and good Vietnamese we mustn't hate like General Key and that lot, albeit backward and unsophisticated. And we had to learn which ones to hate and which ones not to hate, and sadly the wrong lot won at the time, but thanks to Rambo and our brave train killer heroes and the US of, and our very own media barons and historians, the result has now been reversed, a retrospective great victory against evil people we must hate for objecting irrationally to us interfering in their affairs as they saw it, ignoring our right as a US OB acolyte to share the US OB's right to defend liberty, freedom and democracy wherever it is challenged by hateful evil. And while they were handing out bravery awards to the illegal true blue Aussie invaders, I reckoned the top bravery awards should go to the teenagers who preferred being on the run in jail rather than join true blue Aussie in yet another illegal invasion. And how dare those we invade invade us? Those no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people? Well, a horde of selfish so-called refugees fleeing our illegal invasions and thinking they can just turn up here and move in, ignoring the impact a few thousand people would have on our way of life. And who ever heard of people just turning up in boats and taking over the country? Well, since 1788 anyway, and the PNG government and our very own Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, have announced the Manus Refugee Holiday Island Resort will close sometime, sometime, showing their understanding of the word forthwith. The Supreme Court ruling some months ago it must close forthwith. Someone should toss Peter Dictionary and open it at the appropriate page and perhaps, to make it even easier for him, underline forthwith. Would you just read what it says? I, I, uh, I, I, I haven't got my glasses. Defending public funds, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin came up with yet another beat-up about politicians wasting taxpayers' money. Not sure why Lord Rupert worried about that. It's not like any of his money's involved. Taxpayers' money, this time a state Socialist Party MP, taking a couple of trips overseas at taxpayers' expense. But in this case, we do have to give top marks to the Polly for her report on her trip to Paris. Paris, she said, is so... Take a stab, listener. What do you think she said? Educational visit, bringing back information, expertise, adding to our knowledge. Paris, she said, is so Parisian. <laughs> We'd never have guessed. Junk Snacks brand, True Blue Aussie, the, the maker of cheese hells and sundry related pieces of salt, fat and sugar junk with the nutritional value of, of well, cheese hells and sundry related pieces of junk, has been sold to a Philippines, quote, snack food giant with Junk Snacks brand assuring us the move will not change the products. They'll still be the same shit, uh, uh, same rubbish. Roxy Jacinthapuro, wife of a convicted inside trader crook, 
currently experiencing the inside bit went on one of those commercial programs that masquerades as news to declare her husband innocent and iterate her indignation that he was even charged. After all, they have two kids who need their dad. Surely an infallible criminal defence. And the publicity surrounding what she wore to court every day was not of her making as a fashion industry person. She just liked to wear nice outfits. But poor Roxy said she found it infuriating that people assumed her designer outfits and the Bentley and the private jet and the luxury holidays, or the whole luxury lifestyle, were funded by the proceeds of the insider trading. Uh, that's the insider trading of which you say he was innocent. Exactly. Well, in Chicago, the musical, not the city, we recall another Roxy, Roxy Hart, turned murder in a celebrity trial into a lucrative business, so good luck to this Roxy. Oh, and speaking of Roxy Hart, she, our Roxy, hasn't had the heart to tell the dear little kiddies their old man's in the slot, because he shouldn't be. Back to this injustice of stopping us hating and no connection, no connection but that appalling Hoon son. And let's face it, her vote is sort of a caring business class party and socialist party vote because they've shown such tolerance and hospitality and consideration and understanding toward Islams and others fleeing our coalition of the killing invasions apart from telling us they're all potential terrorists. Look, there are many fine Muslims who, like us, don't condone terrorism and believe in the rule of law and tolerance like we're tolerant. Why, we even provide accommodation for these people on Nauru and Manus and Christmas, idyllic Pacific Islands, but... And they've led the way on addressing climate change by acknowledging they might do something about it sometime if the sometime survives the problem. So it's hard to know where appalling voters get their racist, homophobic, xenophobic, science-phobic, if there be such a word, ideas on which top marks to, in fact, the, my word, you thought that one through award of the week, to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin correspondent, Jason. He's heart in the right place, but... Responding to that racist supporter throwing a banana at Indigenous footy star Eddie Betts while yelling monkey, Port Adelaide, Jason wrote, should lose its home showdown next year. Commendable sentiment, Jason, apart from the little matter that, whoever is the home team, they both play on the same ground. And OK, OK, as that appalling would agree, we mightn't want these people like the Terranilius people and other undesirable invaders here to adulterate our racial purity, but our capital can go there. That's why, as patriotic true blue Aussies, we're all so proud of Woodside with Profits Petroleum, buying into a new West African oil venture off Senegal to join its joint venture off Senegal and Guinea-Bissau and another off the coast of Gabon. It's that concept where you get to know an area, you get experienced in it, you create relationships, and that's the best place for you to be. Big Supremo Peter Cole is beautiful man stated. Uh, that's the best place to be to create relationships to benefit the local West African populations you must so care about. I don't follow. What, what have the local people got to do with it? The best place to be to get at the bloody oil. Spoken like a true, true blue Aussie. And finally, a couple of well-known labels who have withdrawn their sponsorship of this US odd star swimmer who lied about a drunken night out in Rio claim he's lying does not conform to their company standards.
very confusing because I'm sure I've seen their advertising. Good afternoon. I'm glad you didn't name anyone there. That was Mr Kevin Healy and that was his week that was. And if you'd like to hear more and he might expand on that, tomorrow morning between 9 and 10 for City Limits. On the program recently, Professor Barry Carr from the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University spoke about the history and present situation in a Latin American country he has studied in and taught about for 45 years, and that was Mexico. Today the focus is Cuba, where the anniversary of the 26th of July movement was recently celebrated. The name originated from the failed attempt on the Mercado Barracks, an army facility in the city of Santiago de Cuba, on 26th of July 1953, which was the precursor to the overthrowing of the Batista dictatorship on the 1st of January 1959. But we go back much further in Cuban history, and I asked Barry first whether the colonial experience of Cuba different or was similar to the other countries on the mainland in Latin America and the Caribbean. In some respects it was, in other respects it wasn't. I suppose that's the kind of complicated answer that most people would expect here if you're talking about going back four or five hundred years in history. It was unusual in that Cuba was one of the very first parts of the Americas that was settled by uh, European power. Of course, it was Christopher Columbus who first set foot on, first European to set foot on, on Cuba. And then Cuba, along with what we now call Haiti and the Dominican Republic, became important uh, islands for the uh, Spanish in the Caribbean. Uh, even when the Spanish started settling the mainland of Latin America, what we now call Peru and Mexico and Bolivia, which um, became much more important. So in that sense, it was a little bit different. The biggest difference, I think, between uh, Cuba's colonial history and the history of other parts of Latin America is that Cuba was a colony much longer than uh, other countries. In virtually all the other cases, what we now call the separate countries of Latin, Latin America, they got their independence at the beginning of the uh, 19th century, between 1810 and 1822, 23. By the early 20s, virtually everywhere in Latin America, they had become an independent state. The exception was, uh, was Cuba and uh, a few other islands in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico being the most obvious example. And Cuba did not get its independence from Spain until very late at the end of the 19th century, until 1898. And the question then would be, well, why is Cuba the odd one out? And the answer has to do with economics. That Cuba became a fabulously wealthy colony for Spain, a country that was already become the sick man of Europe by the 19th century, because of sugar. Sugar, of course came to Cuba quite early, but the real boom in the Cuban sugar industry happened in the 18th and 19th century, and so sugar made Spain very reluctant to uh, to give up its colony, and many of the white elite uh, in Cuba who otherwise might have been calling for independence, as their friends did elsewhere in Latin America 70 years beforehand, were also reluctant to push Spain too much for independence because partly they were doing very very nicely, thank you, economically, but also they tended to look not very far away at what, what had happened in Haiti, uh, which was the first 
country in the Caribbean to gain its independence with a, a, essentially a slave rebellion which led to the destruction of the sugar industry and emigration of lots of white sugar growers and, and the deaths of many white sugar dwellers and they they believe that um, if people started playing around with um, the idea of independence that maybe Cuba would run the same fate uh, as Haiti and the Spanish colonial system always reminded Cubans who talked about independence they always said remember remember Haiti don't muck around uh, with the idea of independence that's a long answer to your very very short short question there are some things that distinguish Cuba in the colonial period and the most important is its late independence and the fact that that independence led immediately to a US occupation what about the indigenous peoples weren't m- most of them wiped out in the early years well the conventional story about uh, this and this is another distinctive feature of Cuba and of some of the other Caribbean islands is that indeed that the, that the indigenous population wasn't very dense to begin with and it was wiped out uh, within 50, 75 years after settlement, by, certainly by the end of the uh, 16th century. And that's a big contrast with what happened on the mainland where in spite of the destruction and deaths of millions of indigenous people, lots of indigenous people still survive, which is why you have indigenous people in in Peru and Guatemala and Mexico and Bolivia and so on. But recent research would suggest that the story is a bit overdrawn. There have been islands and pockets of indigenous settlement in Cuba right up until the present day, and there are all kinds of remnants of that uh, indigenous past seen in terms of language and in terms of some customs in rural areas. But broadly speaking, yeah, I mean, Cuba... Cuba's indigenous population, uh, recognisably so, a recognisable majority, uh, disappeared uh, by the uh, by the 17th century. And that meant that there wasn't labour for the sugar plantations. That's right. Yeah, the, Cuba did not have uh, the large sedentary uh, fixed uh, labour force that. Uh, say, Mexico and Peru and Bolivia had. So this is one of the reasons why slavery became an option, a necessary, in fact, policy for Spain. Really very, very early, even at the end of the, uh, of the 16th century, slaves were beginning to be imported into Cuba. Talk about 1899 when the U.S. took over. The um, U.S. today still talks about the Cuban-American War as, uh, to when they're referring to the... Um, the Second War of Independence in Cuba, uh, which eventually did lead to uh, the end to Spanish rule. Uh, And there was a U.S. military um, intervention in Cuba uh, in the last year of this this War of Independence to assist the Cubans, so the argument went, in the fight against feudal and cruel Spain. But uh, it's not fair to describe and not correct to describe Cuba's Second Independence War as a simply as American war because it ignores the role played by Cubans in this uh, in this conflict. So the Americans did though did tip the balance in the end in 1898. Spain was defeated, and then United States troops uh, stayed on in in Cuba until 1902, uh, which is an unusual development really because normally independence, colonial independence, is normally leads to the withdrawal of the colony and um, and no occupations by any foreign power. But there were good reasons. I think why the uh, why the United States uh, kept its troops in Cuba, and how did the control of Cuba by the U.S. contrast what you said that the feudal and cruel Spain? 
Well, there's no doubt that sort of the, the Spanish rule in Cuba was very often very, very cruel, and certainly the wars of independence in the second half of the 19th century, there were two of them. They saw huge amounts of, um, you know, of violence on the part of the Spanish colonial power, and, and some of the listeners may, may vaguely recall that the term concentration camp, which many of us associate with, uh, with European history of the 30s and the 40s, that in fact the concentration camp, that term, actually emerged for the first time uh, in Cuba and also in South Africa, because part of, the, of Spain's policy of dealing with the independence movement between 1895 and 1898 was to round up rural populations that were supporting the independence fighters, forcing them into, um, I suppose, what later on would call strategic hamlets in Vietnam with tremendous death rates and horrors. So Spain, in that sense, yes, was, it was easy to present Spain if you were an American. If you were an American, it was easy to present Spain as backward and feudal and uh, and reactionary, which in many many respects it was, and that was part of the U.S. Propaganda strategy, a propaganda campaign that was led by the new popular press in the United States, the Hearst Press in particular, which whipped up a lot of enthusiasm in the United States for U.S. intervention on behalf of the brave Cuban people. So the argument went, and it was linked to a strong, kind of almost messianic belief of in the United States that really the fate of Cuba, of, of an independent Cuba, or at least the fate of a Cuba without Spain, would be tied absolutely inexorably to the United States, that really Cuba belonged to the U.S. sphere of influence quite naturally because of geography and economics. And did Cuba remain that profitable the sugar industry continued to boom, uh, although there was a period during, obviously, during the independence struggle and immediately afterwards when there was quite a bit of damage to the sugar industry. But the industry boomed and it boomed and it boomed, uh, including during the uh, First World War when uh, demand for sugar increased uh, and European uh, production of, um, of beet sugar was no longer available to the uh, Americas. So a lot of money was made, and anybody who goes to Havana, for example, the capital city of, of Cuba today, will walk around in some of the suburbs of Havana, like Vedado and Miramar, and these magnificent palatial mansions that still dot the uh, landscape there, were all built during the, the incredible boom, the sugar boom, that lasted until 1919 and 1920, when the boom finally collapsed and it was at that point that U.S. control over the sugar industry really began because Cuban sugar producers simply went bankrupt and uh, the banks took over the uh, foreclosed and took over the, uh, the the sugar states and the sugar mills and so by the early 1930s the U.S. Uh, is a pretty dominant, um, has a dominant role in the sugar industry. When did the gambling and prostitution industries move into Cuba? Well, that's a, a fascinating part of Cuban history. It's really the 1920s. I think that most people would trace the origins of gambling to Cuba because it's, it's because of prohibition in the United States beginning in 1917, 1918, up until the early 30s. It was illegal to sell alcohol in the United States, and so people who would like their drinks went to Cuba, which is, after all, not very far away. You could get to Cuba by ferry, even from uh, southern Florida. And with drinking and came gambling, uh, and with gambling and 
tourism of the kind that was practiced in those days came prostitution. So by the 1930s, there's no question, but that sections of the U.S. Mafia, particularly the Southern or Florida Mafia, associated particularly with the name of Maya Lansky, the great Miami Mafia Don, they began to develop major interests, building casinos, fancy hotels, and developing a close relationship with, with politicians in Cuba, which that relationship kind of flourished really uh, well into the 1950s, um, to the point where Batista, Fulgencio Batista, who was the strong man and dictator of Cuba in the 50s, was really on the payroll of many of the mafia gangster empires. That's part one of a rather long interview that I recorded with Professor Barry Carr, who's from the La Trobe University Latin American Studies Institute, and I'll be playing the second part on the program next week. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. The Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign has been organising events during the year. Recently, historian Dr Judith Smart was guest speaker and her topic, Opposing War, Women Protests in World War I. Last week we heard part one of her talk, now the second and final part. Disruption of other meetings, some of them mixed, some women only, were reported at Richmond, Brunswick, Kensington, Williamstown, Horan, Hawthorne, Footscray, Port Melbourne, Preston, South Melbourne and Faulkner, so you know, right round the inner city ring. Conscription as an issue was of specific relevance to working class women since it directly affected their welfare and the survival of the family unit. It threatened to remove husband breadwinners and sons. It thus contradicted their understanding of the rightful role of both local authorities and the state as the protectors of their welfare, of their bread and butter. It's not without significance that in a Kensington meeting, one woman intoned monotonously throughout the whole evening, you tell me how a woman can live on 30 bob a week and we will listen to you. Now, although the vote in 1916 was a narrow yes in Victoria as a whole, the no's had achieved an ever so slender majority in the Melbourne metropolitan area. And while a good part of this achievement was attributable to the ingenuity, the publicity and determination of the organised antis, including women, it was the support and spontaneous protests of a large number of anonymous men, and especially women, in the inner suburbs of Melbourne that enabled them finally to assert their right to be heard. Okay, second part, the cost of living demonstrations. The same sort of concerns about welfare and the survival of the family were evident too in the food riots that took place in the months of August and September 1917. Riots that resulted in considerable damage and destruction and inspired the authorities to step in to quell them with the full force of the law. Before the war, some members of the Umbrella National Council of Women had begun to take an interest in cost of living issues and the difficulties that many working class women had in making ends meet for a family on an unskilled worker's wage. 
When the value of the pound declined 22.68% in Melbourne in the first year of the war, the time seemed opportune. Between May 1914 and July 1915, meat doubled in price, bread rose 50% and butter 62.5%. The failure of the state government to impose effective price control stimulated the Liberal Party's Ivy Brooks to call for united action among women on the cost of living. Between May and July of 1915, Brooks organised a housewives cooperative association to, quote, encourage cooperative buying and marketing of produce direct from the producer to the consumer. The following months saw the establishment of bureaus in what they called the thickly populated or democratic suburbs, where there were no local uh, markets, so that producers could deliver foodstuffs directly to members at reasonable <coughs> prices. But working-class women did not give the organisation the grassroots support it needed, nor did they rally to this call for consensus. Now, this may be partly attributable to a lack of cash to buy uh, in bulk from the depots. It's all very well to offer people cheap deals you know, for bulk, but you have to have the money to buy it. Um, and that may have been you know, one of the problems. But it also, I think, reflected growing class antagonism and suspicion of the leaders' motives in light of the, their involvement in the recruitment campaign that preceded the, uh, the conscription campaigns, in light also of their growing support for conscription and also their crusade against a planned referendum to increase Commonwealth powers over prices and monopolies. So Vida Goldstein's Women's Political Association, although it had been initially supportive of this Housewives Association, was quickly disillusioned and Labor movement women felt justified in their early suspicions. Raw, class-based political conflict thus overwhelmed the tentative steps taken by middle-class women towards a gendered politics of consumption. By the end of 1916, a much-diminished Housewives Association had eschewed cooperative trading and converted itself into a propagandist group preaching the conservative panacea of thrift as patriotic sacrifice. But prices continued to rise unabated, and labour movement leaders dismissed thrift as, quote, a ploy of capitalism. By 1917, retail prices of food and groceries in Melbourne had risen 28.2% overall. Wages had not kept pace. For Victoria as a whole, they had increased only 15.4% between 1914 and 1917, so at about half the rate. In addition, 1917 saw high levels of unemployment in Victoria, which at 10.6% were the highest since the end of 1914, and rose even higher with the impact of the Great Strike in the months from August to October. The problem of food prices, of food prices was complicated by a wartime agreement with Great Britain, whereby the wheat harvest for 1916-17 had been brought up by the, by the imperial authorities, and from 1915, all frozen meat available for export was guaranteed to Britain. But there was a shortage of shipping by 1917, and that resulted in a build-up of frozen meat in Australian stores, and it left grain in railway sidings to the depredations of weevils and mice. Flour mills closed down, farmers stopped selling animals for slaughter, and this caused local unemployment in both industries, as well as the closure of many retail outlets, and hence there were shortages and higher prices for consumers. It was inexplicable to working-class families who were the sufferers that, as Adela Pankhurst put it, while men were dying like flies in Europe for Australia, their children, their wives and their old parents were being robbed. On the afternoon of the 15th of August, for want of any action by state or federal governments, Pankhurst led a crowd of 2,000 to 3,000 to the steps of Parliament House in Spring Street, which is where the federal government was housed during World War I. 
this was in defiance of a war precautions regulation which prohibited such gatherings within the precinct of, of Parliament House, and that was passed only the previous evening. At this, as well as at, earlier, at an earlier meeting, the majority audience of women heard angry speeches against food exploiters and they were urged to attack the cool stores and forcibly seize the meat. They were the first of many similar demonstrations and meetings that took place regularly well into September. The women were led and organised by uh, an organisation that was called the Women's Peace League, which was sort of a deliberate name, I think, so it was confused with both the Women's Peace Army and with the Women's Socialist League. It was a group formed specifically to raise support for the campaign to reduce the high cost of living, but it stemmed mostly from the Victorian Socialist Party. These demonstrations about the cost of living in August, September 1917 seem to have similarities to the periodic and supposedly irrational outbursts about food prices and shortages in pre-industrial societies. And in 1917 too, the protests, as with the traditional protests, were dominated by women, led but not always controlled by socialist organisers like Adela Pankhurst and Jenny Baines, both former English suffragettes who'd migrated to Australia in 1914. For some weeks... There were almost daily demonstrations in the city of what the socialists called the people's women. They assembled outside Anglis meatworks and butcher shops and other food outlets and factories and they were frequently dispersed by police after a few token arrests of the leaders. The pinnacle of the demonstrations was a torch-like procession held on the 19th of September and attended by as many as 10,000 people at one point. Beginning at the Yarra Bank, the initial crowd of about 2,000 moved along the riverside to Princess Bridge, turned up Flinders Street and continued to the top end of the city at Spring Street, growing bolder all the while as thousands more joined in. Two women carrying the red flag at the head of the procession were quickly arrested and it was not long before the protest turned into a melee. Road metal picked up en route by the demonstrators was hurled at police and there were minor injuries. But after an hour and a half, the crowd was broken up by baton-wielding constables, some sections breaking away and escaping down different streets into the city centre. £5,000 worth of damage was done in a trail of rock-throwing extending along Collins, Russell, Burke and Elizabeth Streets. Now, window-smashing had taken place before and it was to do so again the following Monday in Richmond. The Riot Act was eventually invoked and over 400 special constables were enrolled from citizen volunteers to bring order back to the streets. Adela Pankhurst was arrested on a number of occasions and eventually spent nearly two months of her four-month uh, sentence in, in Pentridge Jail before being released on petition by other women leaders on the 18th of January 1918. While in prison, and especially over the Christmas period, she was regularly serenaded by local women activists from the Coburg and Brunswick area uh, who aimed to keep up her flagging spirits. Working-class women have, on the whole, uh, maintained traditional community-based and local identities in which networking and loyalty among neighbours and relatives, although necessary to survival, had no formal institutional existence. Their political activity in defence of the immediate economic interests of their families was ephemeral. It was short-lived. Uh, it was for the moment. It was a product of crisis and without means of maintaining continuous existence. It could be vociferous, powerful and focused, but it took the form of direct action and carnivalesque symbolism rather than rational argument and ongoing organisation and formal procedures. In its methods and rationale, it displayed strong elements of resistance to middle-class efforts to turn working-class women into compliant, rational and modern citizens. 
We see here considerable continuity in the concerns of working class women and their means of protest with traditional rights in pre-industrial societies. Such outbreaks occurred with greatest frequency when the system that the people understood to be the natural order of things was in crisis and breaking down, as it was during the Great War. The preponderance of women in the crowds is also important in this context, and indeed the police in Melbourne complained that the presence of women inhibited officers from using their batons effectively. Traditional communal and feminine values are evident in the fact that the demonstrators did look back to 1914 as normal times before the war, and their major target was indeed the profiteer, the middleman, as well as the government, which had failed in its role of protector of the people's livelihood. Adela Pankhurst also made it clear that she was operating on a pre-modern notion of natural and moral law that was not comprehended in the legalistic <coughs> and free market assumptions of the Victorian and federal governments in 1917. She said, It appeared to me that laws which compelled the people to see their food destroyed by damp and vermin while their children were in want did violate the conscience. We have a perfect right to break the law if the law is not made in the interest of humanity. But despite these parallels with traditional sorts of food riots and protests, there were also differences in 1917 that demonstrate a modern class consciousness. For every reference to natural economic balance, one can find a modern determination on the part of the leading protesters to bring about radical social and economic change. By the early 20th century in Australia, class conflict was generally more directed to industrial relations and improving wage levels than to household costs. And it was the unusual crisis of wartime that forced primary attention again to prices. Socialist ideals infused the rhetoric, and whether the ordinary participants were class conscious or not, their awareness of class organisations like trade unions made their understanding of economic confrontation a different and more modern one from their predecessors in the 18th and 19th centuries. Thus their culture was no longer only one of organic rights and obligations, though these persisted among the women in particular, it was also one that included organised claims to political and economic power, including power for women. Some police claimed, for example, that the leaders, Adela Pankhurst and Jenny Baines, had deliberately imported suffragette tactics into the demonstrations, <laughs> and this may well be true. Traditional concepts of a just price and a just wage had not disappeared, but the rhetoric for political change made it clear that the purpose of popular protest was to challenge as much as to reassert the existing economic balance in 1917. For example, Pankhurst rallied <laughs> her followers with these words, We will no longer allow the wealth to be in the hands of a few private individuals. We will no longer allow production to be carried on for profit. The protesters worked alongside the unions too and the Labor Party in their campaign against the high cost of living and shortages. They were also conscious of participating in a wider protest in support of the New South Wales strikers and their Victorian counterparts. In one of the afternoon street marches, the throng paused outside the Athenaeum Hall, where the National Service Bureau was enrolling strike breakers, and they waved their umbrellas decorated with red ribbons and jeered at the scabs. They also sang socialist songs. The Great Strike in 1917 was centred in New South Wales, but it did have strong support in Victoria as well. The issue was over the introduction of a card system designed to record the exact time taken by each worker on each particular job. The unions interpreted this as the beginnings of Taylorism, an American scheme of speeding up 
aimed at increasing productivity and prices, but not necessarily wages. In other words, a means of squeezing more out of the workers in the same hours. The strike began in New South Wales on the 2nd of August with 5,780 repair and maintenance men walking off the job and persisted until the 22nd of October. That's a total of 82 days. Approximately 76,000 workers went out on strike in New South Wales, which represented about 14% of the employers, the, sta- the employees in the state's workforce and 33% of its total union membership. In Melbourne, by early September, 20,000 workers were affected, a third to half of them actually on strike or lockdown, and the rest stood down or on short time. This formed the context for the last of my topics for this evening, and that's the Guildhall Commune. Mostly, the strikers' wives and daughters, together with women of the labour movement as a whole, were engaged in fundraising for relief of destitute families without a wage coming in, rather than in the street protests. But in Victoria, the Women's Political Association quite self-consciously took a different approach, setting up a commune in the Guildhall, now Story Hall, to help the wives and children of the striking wharf labourers, as well as the men themselves, by providing the means of self-help. The distribution of handouts would be replaced by assistance to strikers consistent in method and spirit with the fraternalist cooperativism long favoured in the organised labour movement. So it can be seen as a means of erasing the taint of shame and humiliation that invariably accompanied resort to relief and its associations with charity, even when run by labour movement women. It's significant then that this new form of strike support occurred in a feminist organisation rather than among the women of the male-dominated labour and socialist parties, where mostly um, they were part of a largely subordinate, conventionally gender-defined role for women, although some of them protested against that. The Women's Political Association and Peace Army did not officially support the street demonstrations about the cost of living and the violent methods used by Adela Pankhurst and Jenny Baines although they did oppose the harsh treatment of the demonstrators at the hands of the authorities and the refusal of the Prime Minister to hear their case. Instead, the Women's Political Association declared solidarity with the wharf labourers, who first took decisive action on the cost of living issue on the 29th of July 1917, that is before the New South Wales strike, by resolving not to load foodstuffs for shipment overseas except where they were for war purposes, until, they said, the cost of commodities was reduced to pre-war rates. Eventually in Victoria, the cost of living issue emerged with that of the time card system that triggered the Great Strike. The New South Wales wharf labourers went out in sympathy with the railway workers who had downed tools on the 2nd of August in New South Wales. The Victorian wharfies struck work in support of their Sydney comrades on the 13th of August. But the cost of living issue remained pre-eminent for them, and they stayed out till November. And that was well after other unionists in both New South Wales and Victoria had resumed work. And for this reason, the Women's Political Association regarded support for them as the special responsibility of women. This is what the uh, the woman voted, the Journal of the Women's Political Association, said. They did not strike for themselves for better wages, better conditions. They struck for their class and for the community, against the increased cost of living caused by gambling in food supplies. They struck for you and for me. In recognition of the sacrifices the Wharfies had made in taking industrial action to reduce the cost of food, Vida Goldstein and Cecilia John set up a registration bureau specifically for the men of this union and their families so that they could organise provision of food and medical assistance where necessary, especially for nursing and expectant mothers. 
The Women's Political Association also saw the wharf labourers' action in sympathy with the New South Wales strikers as quite consistent with their action over the food crisis. So they supported both of their actions. Early in November, the woman voter printed the manifesto of the union's defence committee in Sydney, which stressed that the strike in the railways over the card system had been a refusal by the men to submit to a scheme that, quote, would have robbed them of every attribute of manliness and reduced them to the wretched position of being half slaves, half machines. To the Women's Political Association, then, Both the Wharfies' rationales for strike action indicated a readiness on the part of the men to assert control over the quality of their life and work and to assist others to do so too. The organisation of the commune was an evolutionary process rather than a a planned blueprint, but it resulted in a a new system of mutual assistance and a conviction that this could be the foundation stone of genuine social reorganisation. Cecilia John and other Women's Political Association members set about the task of supplying basic necessities. St Kilda and North Fitzroy Labour Party branches were acknowledged for their very valuable help with funds and groceries, as were the willing helpers in the pantry and kitchen, those who have sent provisions, eggs, milk, vegetables and bread, and those who have helped with the money, which made possible the provision of meals for all strikers, their wives and children who came into the hall. By early October, nearly 1,500 were being fed in the kitchen and restaurant on the premises and 5,000 others were being supplied with groceries. And that was the final part of an interview, not an interview, a talk which was given by Dr Judith Smart at the recent Brunswick-Coburg anti-conscription commemoration campaign do, I suppose you'd call it. It was a talk by Judith and... Last night there was another talk by Dr Peter Love looking at the life of Frank Anstey who was um, in the Labour Party round about that time and a very interesting life and they named the railway station after him. I'm not quite sure when the railway station was named after him because as someone said last night the the Kobu railway line has been there a long, long time long before the railway station was named after him. But hopefully we... We'll have um, recordings of his talk in coming weeks. I'm not quite sure how well the recording went, but I'm hoping that um, it is broadcast quality. So that's something to look forward to in the future, talking about Frank Anstey and his role during the anti-conscription campaigns of 1916 and 1917 in the area of Brunswick-Coburg. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. 
IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. Earlier today I spoke with Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network, and asked him first what our old friends at the Productivity Commission are up to at the moment. It's interesting you call them old friends. They certainly are getting near retirement, I'd say, the commissioners. The neoliberal economists are out there cutting red tape for farmers at the moment, although from the document that's under discussion, it's hard to see whether there really is any regulatory burden on farmers as they claim. What are they trying to do? Anything that looks like a law that's oppressing farmers like native vegetation clearing or biodiversity conservation support for the biofuel industry, ensuring that scientific principles guide farm animal welfare standards. All of these things are in their sights. But interestingly, in their discussion document on cutting red tape for farmers, which is called an inquiry into agricultural regulation, they don't once mention climate change, which seems a bit of an oversight, really. bit of a worry when they're talking about standards for animal welfare. What are they trying to do there? They are very keen on continuing the live export trade, so anything that can head off the animal people stopping uh, exports of live animals overseas is going to be pretty much a no-no as far as the Productivity Commission is concerned. In any event, they did take evidence in Melbourne last week from the um, Animal Justice Party. remains to be seen what was said. I I wasn't actually at that particular hearing, although um, we did appear uh, to speak about uh, genetic engineering, of course, and uh, they want to have a go at um, the labelling of genetically manipulated foods, so they'd like to get rid of that, and the Productivity Commission's also keen to stop the state governments from declaring GM and GM-free zones, as the South Australians and Tasmanians have done on marketing grounds. It's supposed to be a market inquiry, but uh, it's interesting that they didn't bother to go and have any hearings in South Australia or Tasmania although they're touring the rest of the country to hear what people have to say. Do you believe that they're actually listening to you, or is it just a sop? I did get a report from Sydney that one of them had slept. Uh, If you can listen while you're sleeping, I'm not sure, but uh, they did seem to have um, sort of sets of invisible earmuffs on. Rather than asking us any questions after we'd made our opening remarks, they really sort of entered into rather combative discussion, making some pretty outrageous statements about the state of the world and particularly during our hearing about the state of the world's food supply. They've got a very particular point of view, they've got an ideological position to run and a lot of power, well certainly recommending to the federal government, if the federal government picks up their recommendations then uh, we should take uh, what they say seriously. Of course they have a lot of research economists working behind them as well and I think it's more important to try to get the ear of those young women, quite honestly, and see if we could influence any of them to take a more reasonable point of view. So we're feeding them documents, we're having discussions and uh, generally trying to get something more reasonable on the table, I think, for farmers for the future because 
there is a crisis of climate change, of uh, markets for things like dairy products. We see Murray Goulburn in huge crisis and a lot of dairy farms, especially now having to sell their animals rather than milk them. There's a lot of change going on, a lot of uh, change happening, and our insistence that uh, the feeding of Australians rather than export markets should be number one seem to be falling on deaf ears. I quoted, for instance, uh, Food Bank's website, and among its facts is that two million Australians are now food insecure and dependent at some time during the year at least on charity to be able to feed themselves and their families. That's a scandal in a country as... Uh, richly endowed as Australia is, really is an indictment on our governments that uh, Food Bank is now the fastest growing NGO in Australia. National Science Week was last week and it was celebrated in many places, including here at 3CR with our science program. But they had a, a visitor to Australia who has who was sort of come in the back door and tried to say that we can do it better, we can do it a different way. Well, there are a lot of young people out there dreaming of being the next Steve Jobs or uh, Bill Gates. They all want to become rich and famous, and uh, biology is a whole area in which they now think they can have free reign to do stuff in their garage or their bathroom or their kitchen, whatever happens to take their fancy, in the way of uh, genetic engineering. There are some new techniques around uh, that... Uh, are collectively called gene editing by those who promote them that still pose big risks to human health and the environment as far as we're concerned. But it's not even clear yet that our regulators will be including them uh, within their regulatory processes. And it may be that the new kits that are now available online for as little as $130 that young, enthusiastic gene hackers can get from overseas uh, will actually be coming into the country and they will be doing informal research outside any contained lab laboratory environment without training and without any proper supervision. What can they do? Well, we don't really know yet, but uh, US biohacker Ellen Jorgensen, who was here last week and spoke in Perth and three times in Sydney, is certainly saying that citizen science, which of course is very popular and understandably so, trying to cloak this new gene hacking approach where people can do their own genetic manipulation in the citizen science. Oh, we'll go out and we'll survey different species and we'll see what their range is and whether we've correctly identified them, what their genetic makeup is and so on. It makes it sound very benign, but I think the hidden underbelly, the underside of this is that we can expect sometime soon that Keen young people will be taking risks with their own lives, with their families and, and communities by getting hold of uh, the means, both the instructions and the sort of fairly basic equipment to do uh, biohacking, uh, as it's generally called, or gene hacking uh, at home so that they can, uh, they hope, discover the next great thing that's going to uh, change the world and make them rich and famous. Uh, using genetic engineering technologies, the new CRISPR, ZFN, RNAi and various other kinds of GWIS new genetic manipulation technologies. I think at this stage for the money you probably get a fairly basic laboratory set up. You know, you'd have to use your own kitchen equipment and so on, but just um, basic pipetting, maybe some genetic analysis uh, strips and various other things. I haven't had the kit, I haven't seen it, but... Uh, from the descriptions online, 
it's a set of instructions and it's a fairly basic laboratory material that you can buy, probably buy more cheaply elsewhere. But in any event, it's been made into a kit. It's being promoted. Like all new G-Wiz things, I suppose it'll uh, make its, um, uh, the people who put it together fairly wealthy at $130 a pop. And at the moment, there are no constraints on importing such equipment as far as the Office of Gene Technology Regulators is concerned. What they've said is that unless there is a genetically manipulated organism included in a kit of this kind, that it won't be of any concern to them and that uh, people are allowed to, uh, to get them and use them. What is concerning is a beginning of some warnings about this. We, we had a, in 2000 an incident in a proper CSIRO laboratory here in Australia in which um, experimenters were doing what was then called an immunosterilization experiment. This was an idea they had where they could genetically engineered live microorganisms in a way that would, when they put it out into the environment, it would infect something like rabbits or um, foxes, feral animals in Australia, and it would convey to those animals what was called immunosterilization. That is, it would, would immunize them against their own reproductive eggs and sperm. They would not be able to reproduce. Gee whiz idea didn't work. They spent um, many millions of dollars on trying to get it to work and uh, quite a long time, about 15 years, researchers uh, at CSIRO worked on it. In any event, uh, on this particular occasion in 2000, they invented a virus which killed all of their experimental animals. The researchers realised that they had actually created an organism that, if it was out in the open environment, could create a pandemic, really, uh, among mammals, uh, which of course includes human beings. So they did publish their results and warning that that particular method of creating microorganisms could produce an organism that was going to be extremely pathogenic, could potentially kill particular species or be much more widely pathogenic than that, perhaps potentially to human beings as well. Well, they did report it, of course, because yeah. they were under the control of an institutional biosafety committee. They were right. working within contained laboratory facilities, and they did realise what they had done by accident. You know, let's hope that there are no other accidents with these uh, folks tinkering around when they know nothing, when their, um, uh, their workplace is not contained at all, and they're not under any sort of supervision or expert control. Apropos that, we had last year the director of the national intelligence in the USA, James Clapper, uh, saying that the new GM techniques should be added to the threats posed, and I quote, by weapons of mass destruction and proliferation. This is an annual worldwide uh, threat assessment that the US intelligence community does. And he went on to say, quote, given the broad distribution, low cost and accelerated pace of development of this dual use technology, its deliberate or unintentional misuse might lead to far-reaching economic and national security implications. The spooks already know there's a potential problem, but it appears that our regulators uh, haven't yet dropped to this fact. So we've got a bit of campaigning work to do to try to convince both our governments and our regulators that these new GM techniques need to come under our regulations. They need to be very rigorously and stringently assessed. We need to, the precautionary principle and strong legal sanctions imposed to ensure that nobody without the training, without the facilities and without the supervision 
is going to be allowed to do genetic manipulation in Australia. This isn't happening. A couple of colleagues went to the meetings last week and were pretty dismayed at what they heard because uh, Ellen, the biohacker from the USA, and uh, some keen young guys here are talking this up in a way that's potentially very dangerous. So we're going to definitely be talking to the new parliament federally very shortly to alert them to the need for some amendments to the Gene Technology Act so that it can cover these eventualities. And we hope that happens as quickly as possible. DIY, genetic engineering, should not be on. We know too much about the dangers for it simply to be done in the way that's proposed. And who are the people or the companies who are behind it? At the moment, I think it's individuals, really. Ellen's got a uh, space, which is a citizen science space in New York City, and there's one in Paris and in a couple of other cities around the world where they are discussing safety issues, where they are promoting the technology in a way that will perhaps enthuse and educate young people so that they will go and get properly trained and will work in proper facilities. But I think the risk is that there are going to be some cowboys around, and I think there already are, both here in Australia and overseas, who are going to want to be very entrepreneurial. They'll, as I said at the beginning, see themselves as sort of the next Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. They have the mistaken impression that because we can cut and paste computer programs, that we could cut and paste genetic programs as well. The only thing is really that despite the fact that we invented computer programs, that we know what the code is, zeros and ones, we still get bugs and we've got people out there quite happily creating viruses that they send around to computers to try to um, send things awry. We didn't invent the genetic code. It's been under invention for the last some billions of years. We're not quite sure how many billions of years. Evolutionary processes have been at work. And now some keen young people think that they know better than nature and that they can go and cut and paste genes willy-nilly and not get some unfortunate results. So this kind of hubris, this kind of misconception about we invented this so we can operate that you know, and we can do the same in nature is really badly wrong-headed and dangerous, I think. And uh, we need our regulators to get proactive, which they aren't at the moment, to get very proactive and tell our government uh, we need more powers and we need the definition of genetic manipulation and a genetically manipulated organism to be extended so that we can include these new uh, techniques, processes, and organisms in our regulation and we can get serious about enforcing our law and monitoring what's going on because they're not doing it at the moment. Tell us about GM pasture, GM grass. Who's been doing that? A few people. Um, Dairy Australia's been very keen on it for a long time, of course, thinking that the dairy industry could be rescued by having grass that grew better. Meanwhile, of course, you've got some sensible dairy people and uh, cattle grazers as well who are starting to import varieties, particularly from other environments in the Middle East, pasture varieties that are proving to be extremely successful here. In the conversation, which is the online university discussion, there's been an article in the last couple of days too about making much better use of the native varieties of Australia, some of which are already being used uh, as animal fodder, for instance, West Australian smoke bush has been now extensively introduced into other parts of Australia where it's um, feeding sheep and cattle if you want to feed those animals really and (laughs) we need to think about all being vegetarians but if we're going down that track 
certainly in dry times, West Australian smokebush seems a very good option as a fodder crop for animals in dry environments. When we get hit by drought, these crops still prosper and uh, you've got something to feed those animals. That said, of course, the governments are still, and the scientists are still promoting the GM grass. So we've had the Victorian Department of Primary Industries out at Bandura uh, working on this for a long time. And it's been, been talked up again recently as uh, this is going to be the saviour of um, the dairy and pasture industries. However, when you look at the record, the only application that was made for the pasture grasses was a field trial conducted by our own Department of Primary Industries actually in 2008 and the research was wound up without apparently being concluded. No findings were ever published. So I, I think really throwing more money at that is really a waste of money and the idea is a dead duck. We need to get moving on using smarter ideas for feeding animals in Australia and that's in an increasingly dry and oscillating climate where you can't quite predict the weather as well as uh, we could in the past. We stop wasting money on genetic manipulation experiments that are leading nowhere. So I'm hoping that uh, GM grass goes off the agenda totally and that Dairy Australia stops trying to talk it up and kid the farmers that anything's going to happen soon that's going to save them. I know that South Australia is one of the states that has a GM moratorium and just driving through to South Australia a couple of weeks ago gives you the impression of just how many miles or kilometres and kilometres of wheat that is growing in South Australia and the importance of that to their economy. Oh, hugely important. And of course, uh, in WA and actually in field trials in South Australia too, there are wheat trials going on. Again, genetically manipulated wheat, if it were grown here, would be an absolute disaster for the wheat industry. And farmers are already saying that they don't want it, that they don't need it, and that it would be a, a marketing disaster. You know, we export most of our wheat and already you've got millers and noodle makers and the rest of the wheat-based industry in Asia saying we don't want genetically manipulated wheat. I think people here just have to get serious about listening to their customers, not bother with it really. It would be a disaster. Meanwhile, the South Australian government, as I mentioned earlier, has got a good policy on GM-free. It's supported by all of the political parties, the Greens and Liberals, are on site as well. Their moratorium on genetically manipulated canola uh, has been extended out to 2019 and we're hoping that following a review in that year it will be further extended. There's no particular reason to suppose differently as, uh, as I said, all the political parties at the moment support the moratorium. And interestingly, current Minister of Agriculture there, Leon Bignall, last year commissioned a report on the benefits to South Australia of being GM-free. Although we haven't seen the report yet, he did mention in an interview a couple of weeks ago that, and this is relevant to that Productivity Commission that's going on, he did mention that the inquiry in South Australia into whether or not being GM-free is a plus for their economy found that, yes, definitely there are benefits that being able to produce GM-free canola, dairy products, wine... A whole raft of products, both for local markets and for export, does produce a positive outcome for South Australia. I believe that it's the same as true in Tasmania. It's what other countries demand, isn't it? Clean food. 
Well, it is, and the proponents of genetic manipulation are always talking up the scale of their industry and saying, oh, globally, we're on such a roll and we're the fastest-growing sector as well. But when you examine it, it's an absolute furphy. It's really stalled. Last year, the amount of genetically manipulated crops globally fell by 1% for the first time. Only a small decline, but it seems to have plateaued over the last two or three years. So at the moment, you've got around 18 million farmers involved globally. But of course, the number of farmers globally is in excess of 500 million. It's small. As far as the number of countries are concerned, we've got 160 countries that are GM-free versus, they claim, 28 countries growing some GM. And the vast majority of those grow so little that you might as well call it a trial, really. Most of the GM is grown by six or eight countries, mostly in North and South America. And now China is starting to grow, and, and India are starting to grow a bit more as well. But really, it's, it's a very confined industry. It's small. And then on an acreage basis, they keep trumpeting that we're doing 180 million hectares a year of GM crops worldwide. But the total arable land in the world is something in excess of 1.4 billion hectares. So again, it's a very small part of the total picture. We've got many other good research and other proposals going ahead to do things rather differently. And I think really, because they've never produced any more, the companies are the only people who have got fat out of genetic manipulation. Really, it's time to write it off, even though the new GM techniques are coming along and everybody's shouting to the rooftops about them. I think we need to say, in the era of global climate change, we need to do things differently. And as um, a major UN report said several years ago, genetic manipulation of our crops, animals and food-producing microorganisms is not part of the future picture. It's a dead duck technology that's not delivering on its promises. Better to save the money and spend it on uh, some more productive areas of research and development. Here, here, say I, and that was Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Genetics Network. If you'd like to find out more, have a look at their webpage, and I'm quite sure they're on Facebook as well, the Gene Ethics Network. And you are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, where the time is eight minutes past five. You're listening either 3cr.org.au, streaming live. You can also get onto the podcast by 3cr.org.au or you could be listening on digital which is just 3cr or the old-fashioned way 8:55 a.m on your radio dial hoy there shipmates this is captain trash from the port philip echo center in st kilder did you ever hear the crow in the sky going ah ah Stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Next, our monthly interview with the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Margie Bebus. And Margie, a number of issues to be discussed today. And so we'll begin with the proposal to build the nuclear waste dumps in South Australia for both national and international nuclear waste. A citizen's jury of 54 people has recently completed their findings. 
the jury was a cross-sectional of people chosen as part of a random mail-out to study the Royal Commission report with the aid of experts. Why are they using citizens' juries? I think the importation of nuclear waste is such a hard sell that they're using every method they can to get community buy-in because nobody really wants a huge amount of this very toxic, incredibly long-lived material. So I think the first thing they did was have a Royal Commission, which was probably unnecessary given that this wasn't actually a contested criminal area. This was just an inquiry would have been fine, but giving it the status of a Royal Commission meant that it could be put to the public as a much more important issue. The citizens' jury is a process that has got increasing traction around the world as a way of getting communities to make decisions. I mean, local councils are now using them to try and involve people in the decision-making. One good thing that's come out of the citizen jury is that they have quite rightly questioned the economic modelling of this project. If you look at who's done the economic modelling, it's been done by firms who have a strong interest in the project going ahead. And even these firms have said that there is a lot of risk involved in the project. And it's interesting how enthusiasm, as soon as you say that it's not going to make money or potentially could lose billions for South Australia, suddenly interest in the project evaporates. And there are many, many problems with this. I mean, importing this waste, for example, in France, the building of their high-level nuclear waste facility doubled in the last 10 years. So projecting costs is very difficult. And in the nuclear industry, it's got a very long history of, of costs blowing out of the water, delays and incredibly large cost overruns. But the other thing that's not being pushed in South Australia is that there are no high-level waste dumps running anywhere in the world, that they're all either closed down for safety reasons or haven't worked. And for the Royal Commission to say that Finland and Sweden have successful models, well, these models aren't going to even start working till 2025. It's a bit like um, the Yes Minister episode when they said that the best-running hospital was the one that had no patients. They're citing an example of a a high-level waste dump that doesn't have any waste yet because it's still a good decade off from opening. So the reason that countries are prepared to spend billions to get rid of their nuclear waste is because it's an unsolved problem. And citizens' jury or no citizens' jury, an unsolved problem plus the potential to lose billions, if not tens of billions of South Australian dollars of taxpayers' money, it seems to me like an incredibly ambitious sell. And I think the reason they're using the citizens' jury is to try and sell it further. They've got 100 state government going to 100 different sites to put information to the community about this project. So the government is very keen to get it across, but it remains to be seen whether this actually happens. Now, that's the international waste. What about the proposal for a dump for the national waste? MAPW actually does think we need a national waste repository. We do need a properly built and designed repository. The problem with this process is a number of things. Firstly, what they're designing is not a proper facility at all. They're going to dispose of low-level waste, but the intermediate-level waste, which is the real problem, the real most of the radiation is in the intermediate-level waste, is basically going to be stored in sheds and not disposed of properly by international standards. So firstly, the dump they're designing is, is not good enough. But there's also the information they've put out. They've said all sorts of things like to guilt communities into taking it, that this is all about health. Well, less than 1% of the material that will go into this waste dump is from use of nuclear medicines. There's two ways you get waste. One is from using the medicines. One is from making the medicines. Now, most countries in the world import the nuclear waste. There's about five reactors worldwide that do most of the 
world supply. So most countries don't have a nuclear reactor, they don't get the nuclear waste. Australia has chosen in the past to have a reactor, it's a political choice. The reactor would make medical materials less than one day a week and the rest of the time it's used for research purposes and for industrial purposes. But the government has tried to sell this on medical reasons, which is false. We don't need this for medical purposes. The second thing that's been very poorly done is not many people are aware that they're planning to massively increase the amount of intermediate waste that they're going to produce. Australia is planning to go from producing 1% of the world's medical isotopes, which is what we use for imaging, for tests and what have you, to producing 25 to 30%. So a 25-fold increase in the amount of medical materials they're producing. And that's it's a very complicated story, but basically Canada, who used to produce 25 to 30% of the world's isotopes, has decided to close their reactor in 2018 when they did a good study into it. They found not only was it extremely expensive, but also left them with all the nuclear waste. And they also found that using cyclotrons, which is a new method, it's a bit like comparing coal to renewables. They've, got, they've found a method of making these medical radioactive materials without producing long-lived waste. And it's a sort of a revolution. But Australia, instead of adopting new technology, is going to boost the old technology and we're going to be left with all the waste. And all that intermediate level waste will end up wherever this dump goes. So we're very concerned that there hasn't been a properly... The production of this waste, which lasts 100,000-odd years hasn't been properly looked into and the Australian government is, is pulling a bit of a swifty on the people who are, are going to end up with this dump. What does the Australian government believe that they'll get out of this? To be honest, I think they've been extremely badly advised. I can't understand why you would make this decision. ANSTO, which runs the reactor in Sydney, I think it's very hard because there's no transparency, so I'm making assumptions here. But from the outside, it appears that... ANSTO, who runs the reactor, is behaving as a vested interest. It suits them to have the reactor used more. It suits their business model. Again, the business model is not public, but I would assume that if they're saying this is going to make money, they're assuming that the taxpayer will pick up the bill for the insurance for the reactor. They'll pick up the bill for the decommissioning of the reactor. They'll pick up the bill for the waste in the reactor because the only way that you could make money is to ignore all those enormous costs. The Canadians, when they did a very thorough economic analysis of what it costs to actually have a reactor, including insurance, including the decommissioning of the reactor and including the waste, found that it was totally uneconomic and that large taxpayer subsidies were needed to produce these isotopes. But ANSTO, if it doesn't have to pay for those things, can produce the isotopes relatively cheaply. So they, they I think, think that this is a, a profitable business model for them. But as I said, there's such a lack of transparency, that's all assumption. But I think, the, personally, I think the decision is so bad that I think the government's probably been very badly advised. Over the past year or so, it's becoming obvious that medical facilities and their staff in war areas in the Middle East are, are not being protected from the fighting and the bombing. What does the international law say about protecting medical staff and their facilities? Well, this is clearly illegal in international law. Um, these facilities are supposed to be protected and not um, a target, and in fact, the Médecins Sans Frontières, people who were recently attacked in Yemen, were very explicit that both sides of the conflict had the exact coordinates of where their facility was and knew exactly where it was so that it could be left out of any attacks. I think increasingly these, these facilities are being targeted. Um, in fact, in the Iraq war, within the first 12 months, half the doctors in Iraq had fled, 
and those that remained include and the nursing staff and other people working at hospitals were deliberate targets from both sides it's really devastating because it means not only does a war kill all these civilians but by attacking facilities not only do you kill medical staff and nursing staff and destroy the hospital but then you go on to destroy the health system in Iraq when they looked at the total our German affiliate the National Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War brought out a very carefully researched paper on Iraq looking at casualties in Iraq and came to the conclusion that roughly a million people died in Iraq not all from direct combat some from the loss of medical facilities some from the loss of vaccination programs so it just magnifies the, the damage of society magnifies the, the impact on the poor people who were left living there and this particularly vicious attacks on the people of Yemen in a war where it gets very little publicity in the West, and yeah. I believe it's mainly because most of the violence is carried out by Saudi Arabia and their cohorts yes. who are yes. supported yes. armed by the yes. US. Yes, and, and the biggest purchases of arms from the US is Saudi Arabia. Mind you, Australia's sixth, and we're not doing so well ourselves, but yes, I think that Saudi Arabia, a lot of blind eyes turn to Saudi Arabia because it is supported by the US and, and by us. The level of public outcry about this level of publicity is not what it should be. And then we have the level of public outcry against the the treatment of refugees in Australia. And I think we need to look no further than Australia to identify the pariah state yes, regarding absolutely. treatment of refugees. Yes, well, in the last week or two, there's been about 40 protests at members of Parliament's office, including the Labor Party, because the Labor Party, in fact, is only asking for... An inquiry into abuses. We don't need an inquiry into abuses. We need to uh, call for these facilities to be shut down completely. About, I don't know if you saw it, but a couple of weekends ago there was a, a really interesting article by some fairly smart people, you know, Tim Costello, Robert Mann, John Menadieu and Frank Brennan, saying, really, if we can maintain what was done in terms of boat turnbacks, whether that is something that can be explored just to enable closure of a facility to try and make some sort of compromise. Now, I, I philosophically have made grave reservations about boat turnbacks, but, but it seems ethically at least slightly more acceptable than leaving these people to rot who have been shown to be refugees. I mean, over three quarters have been shown to be refugees and they're just indefinitely imprisoned. The mental health damage that's being done is, is, is appalling. And you just to label these people are liars and that the people who are reporting, well, they're, they're virtually saying they're liars as well. The Border Force Act business of two years imprisonment for unauthorised disclosure is again, as you said, who is the pariah state here? I think it's a real disgrace for Australia to be treating these people so badly and then threatening the people who look after them that they will, who, who basically are whistleblowers on what's happening in Manus and Nauru. So I think the government should be very ashamed and, and, and bringing in change is very important. We've got to close these places. I think there's also a danger of, the, the, of sending people back because we know that people being sent back to Sri Lanka are not treated well. They're treated very badly. And yep. there was the instance of sending people back to Vietnam. Well, you can imagine what's going to happen to those people if they're, they're fleeing a country and they come back. They're not yep. going to get a warm welcome, are they? No, no. And in fact, some of them are deliberately, as you said, targeted because they've fled. They had problems before, but now their problems are magnified. So it's, um, yeah, I think sending... And also the sending them back, 
When they've been demonstrated to be fleeing, this is a complete abrogation of all the treaties we've signed. We have signed the United Nations Treaty for the Refugees. We, we are bound by that, and, and to be completely flouting it is just wrong. But they just seem to waffle over it and just completely ignore it, as if yeah. it's not there. It's a loss of the rule of law that they so much pride themselves on. They're just not doing what we have signed up to do. You spoke about demonstrations around Australia. In the last couple of weeks, there's also been a few demonstrations events against companies like Wilson Security. We know what they're doing, and also Lockheed Martin for building the drones. Yes. At the end of July, a couple of um, Christian activists locked themselves to the gate in the Dandenong Lockheed Martin plant, um, and they said they were doing it basically just to slow down arms development. And then just a few weeks later, the Victorian government announces with pride that Lockheed Martin are going to open a new facility in Port Melbourne, designing computer software to help direct attacks. And that's just, we really have to reflect, is this the sort of industry that we're now reduced to accepting, given where we are? I mean, they're talking about robotics, machine learning. And the other thing that wonder about with Lockheed Martin is Canada, as you would know, the Joint Strike Fire, the F-35, has had a very bad run in terms of being too expensive. It's been delayed. It's had major technical issues. The last test flight it had, five out of six planes couldn't get off the ground because there was such software glitches. And the software for these planes has been very problematic. There's questions as to whether these planes, in fact, are going to be obsolete by the time they finally get delivered. And so Canada, in fact, had cancelled its F-35s. And you do wonder whether Lockheed Martin, by setting up a new facility in Australia, is trying to insure itself against Australia cancelling its program because these fighters are increasingly looking like they're not a good... They're, they're, not, they're designed to be attack planes. They're, they're strike fighters. They're not defence planes. And they're designed to fit in with the US military. They're not necessarily suitable for Australian purposes. In fact, when they were ordered, they were ordered whilst the, the Australian Defence White Paper was still being prepared. So it was quite separate from sort of long-term strategic plans for Australia. It was a decision by Prime Minister Abbott. You have to reflect why didn't he wait for the uh, strategic analysis of our White Paper? Why did he order these and what was behind it? And I'd imagine there are protests in other countries as well against the, the war machines of their, of their governments. Well, drone particularly, I, I was looking at this last night, and in Germany in May there was a, a huge human chain of about 5,000 people around a Air, US Air Force base in Germany, which they feel was had unmanned drones being directed out of there. And similarly in America, um, the Creed Air Force base, where these drone strikes actually are organised and directed. They had a mock die-in from a mock drone strike from a funeral procession. Um, so, yeah, there are protests going on all around the world. There's the, the drones, the extrajudicial killings, which are happening. If you think about the longer term, really just fuel the hatred. I mean, it's, it's enabling recruitment for these extremist groups because it's happening in places like Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan. These are countries Australia is not at war with. And, and in fact, we have a role in it. I mean, Pine Gap is, is certainly receiving intelligence that would be used to help with drone strikes. It's something that Australia is complicit in also. Absolutely complicit, and people are planning to take off in the next couple of weeks to go up to Pine Gap or get to Alice Springs at least. Yes, well, the Pine Gap protests, from the 26th of September to the 1st of October, there's a, a protest camp 
um, and if people are interested in that, that's, there's a website, closedpinedat.org. There's a conference on Saturday the 1st of October, which about the 50 years, because it's the 50th anniversary of the opening of Pine Gap, or the contracts in Pine Gap being signed, rather. So that's in Alice Springs on the 1st of October. And again, if people are interested, they can look at ipan.org.au, I-P-A-N, so Independent and Peaceful Australian Network. And then also there's a, a, an evening on the Friday night before that conference where they're having a lot of terrific speakers about Pine Gap. And so if you if you can get up there, that's on the Friday the 30th of September and that'll have people like um, Scott Ludlam, Richard Tanter, Lisa Natividad, who's a professor at the University of Guam, and uh, a professor, Konzu Abe, who's from um, Okinawa, both places that have got American bases. That's a public forum that if people are interested in going to, should be excellent. And finally, some good news from the campaign to get rid of nuclear weapons. Yes, it's so exciting. The final meeting of the United Nations Working Group on Disarmament had its vote on Friday night, and it was won resoundingly to press on and recommend for uh, negotiations to start on a nuclear weapons ban treaty. Interestingly, Australia, who says it's against nuclear weapons, was the worst offender in trying to undermine this, and it forced what had been going to be a unanimous support to, to a vote, but the Australians lost badly, I'm glad to say. So this is now going to the General Assembly, United Nations General Assembly in November, and we're hoping and quietly optimistic that this will be that the next step will be a call for negotiations for a nuclear weapons ban. I mean, following that will be about a decade of verification and reduction of stockpiles, so it's just the first step in many steps, but it's a huge one, and we're closer really to a nuclear weapons ban treaty than we have been for decades, so it's really exciting stuff. We're very, very delighted. Congratulations to all those who've been involved in the work of ICANN, WILP. There's been a huge number of groups that have been working on this, and it's really tremendous. Good oh. Well, that's a good place to stop. Yep, I reckon. Thanks, Margie. Thanks a lot. And that's Dr Margie Beavis, who's the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and looking at Pine Gap on the program next week. Activist Jacob Grech will be detailing what's happening up there, but not only what's happening up there, but who are the major players who are controlling what's happening up there. So that's on the program next week. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. I'm speaking now with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and the topic, of course, is the Pacific. And I think, Nick, we should begin this conversation with congratulations to the Fiji 7 soccer team for their gold medal at the recent Olympics. Absolutely. It's the first gold medal ever won by a South Pacific team. First gold medal, obviously, for Fiji. 
Previously, the only medal won by a South Pacific country was a weightlifting silver by uh, a Pia Wolfgram of Tonga uh, in the weightlifting a few years ago. So it's a, a huge cultural event in Fiji, talking to friends there. Um, yesterday was a public holiday declared by the government to welcome the team home. It's uh, captured a mood in Fiji because um, the government of Fiji under Varenki Bainimarama has been really pushing the boundaries of their role on the international stage. For example, uh, this year, for the first time ever, a Pacific Island country has been elected to the presidency of the UN General Assembly. Fiji's uh, UN Ambassador Peter Thompson has been chosen on behalf of the Asia-Pacific Group to preside over the General Assembly for the next year. And that's never happened before. And so, in some ways, the, the celebrations, literally the dancing in the street that you see over the gold medal comes at a time when Fiji is feeling that it can strut on the international stage. And after the coup in 2006 that Bainimarama led as head of the military, Fiji started striking out with a fairly independent foreign policy. And you see it in all sorts of ways. Just over the last week, for example, there's been negotiations in Geneva for what's called the Open-Ended Working Group on Nuclear Disarmament. There's been a push from developing countries to develop a treaty to ban nuclear weapons, as there has been to ban uh, cluster bombs, uh, uh, landmines and other uh, weapons of mass destruction, like biological weapons. At this meeting in Geneva, Australia actively opposed the push from developing countries, yet Fiji's ambassador, Nazat Khan, stood up to campaign very strongly in support of uh, the majority position. And indeed, Australia put up a, a resolution that got voted down substantially. And the issue now goes to the UN General Assembly, where, surprise, surprise, Fiji will be president of this year's assembly sessions and will be shepherding through this uh, position on uh, trying to develop, in the face of opposition from the nuclear powers and from the countries that back them, like Australia and Japan. The gold medal sort of comes in an interesting time in the Pacific, where the Pacific is pushing a new diplomacy that asserts its own interests, its own agendas, its own concerns, often in the face of opposition from Canberra and, to a certain extent, Wellington. Well, where does that leave the Pacific Islanders Forum, then, if they are branching out? Well, it's uh, an issue of some tension, Frank Bainimarama was uh, suspended. The Fiji regime was suspended from the forum after the 2006 coup and only after elections in September 2014 was Fiji invited back. But Bainimarama refused to go to the forum last year in uh, Papua New Guinea and uh, we don't know yet, but my suspicion is that he'll refuse to go to the forum in Federated States of Micronesia. The Fiji government has suggested that the forum needs to be reformed. This is the body that was created in 1971 to bring together the independent Pacific countries. And Australia and New Zealand joined soon after. And at the time there were four independent Pacific countries when it was founded. Today there are 14. Indeed there's discussion about expanding it to the French territories, New Caledonia and French Polynesia, to bring them inside the tent. But as this islander focused agenda, the new diplomacy, new Pacific diplomacy, as it's been dubbed, comes to the fore. People are saying, well, maybe Australia and New Zealand aren't on the same side as us when it comes to important questions. The thing that's really broken the camel's back on this sort of discussion, which people have been griping about for a long time, has been climate change. You know, you can pretend uh, that our differences over trade policy can be managed. You can pretend that, you know, people aren't grumpy about Australia throwing around its weight on questions like nuclear disarmament. But for the Pacific, climate change is a make-or-break issue. 
successive policies, particularly under the Abbott government, have driven a real wedge between Australia and fellow members of the forum. And although Malcolm Turnbull says he believes in climate change, unlike his predecessor, you've still got now a Senate full of people like Malcolm Roberts, who thinks it's all a NASA conspiracy. You know, One Nation people who are going to campaign very hard against Turnbull doing anything on climate change. And the Pacific read the same newspapers that we do, listen to the same radio broadcasts that we do. They know that the Australian Parliament is hamstrung and for the next three years we're not going to see a lot of action coming out of the Australian Parliament on this core issue about climate change. So that reinforces the trend that the Pacific are going to set their own agenda. Because Australia, however, is the largest country within the forum and within the... uh, uh, the budget, the largest contributor to the forum, that means we still have enormous sway over the, the forum secretariat and the agenda that's put forward. So there's this tension in the heart of the forum at the moment between Australia's agenda, our alliance with the United States on nuclear and security issues, our commitment to the, the coal industry <laughs> when it comes to climate change. And, uh, so topic by topic, there are differences with many of our Pacific Island neighbours. What about the new forum that Bali Marama set up? Well, first in about 2010, they started having a series of meetings called Engaging with the Pacific. Bainim Rama had been uh, kicked out of the forum or suspended from forum membership, similarly with the Commonwealth. So Fiji said, all right, if we can't come to your meetings, we'll set up our own. And they set up meetings uh, with other Pacific Island countries, with Timor-Leste, and with the new non-traditional donors that have come into the Pacific over the last decade or so, countries like China and uh, some Arab nations, uh, Iran, Latin American countries, a real mix of countries that are interested in engaging with the island's region. And those engaging with the Pacific meetings evolved into a new structure called the Pacific Islands Development Forum. So the name's close, but not the same. It's... it's um, a separate structure from the Pacific Islands Forum, the long-standing body that's existed you know, since the early 70s. And PIDF's interesting because it brings together not only government representatives but NGO, community, church representatives and business representatives, so uh, corporate sector and so on, to sit around the table together. And that's quite different from the Forum, which is an intergovernmental body, which is the heads of government meet annually. It has a secretariat that's government-to-government. Um, And NGOs for a long time have complained that the forum has resisted the sort of issues that churches, uh, community groups, women's groups and so on have been raising outside the government agendas. So PIDF is now open to those groups. So it's more like a grassroots rather than a government. Well, it's still got government influence. um, And and when it was first set up, people said, oh, this is just Bainimarama's plaything. And after the the Fiji regime returns to parliamentary elections, after Bainimarama goes back to democracy, so-called, the PIDF will wither and die. Well, in fact, it hasn't. And this year, the PIDF was hosted by the government of the Solomon Islands. Their meeting was not held in Fiji. Their meeting was held in the Solomons, which is quite symbolic that Manasseh Sogavari was willing to host the PIDF, uh, set the agenda around climate and other issues, simply because the Pacific wants a space where they can talk about their agenda items, their priorities, their concerns, without Australia in the room and without ultimately Australia paying the bills, which helps drive the agenda. And, you know, that's part of the problem, that the Pacific, if they want to speak up for themselves, they have to pay for their own work or get new donors, and that's where countries like China, like Taiwan, uh, like Indonesia and others are now very active in the region. So it's an interesting time in the Pacific where there's some major changes underway 
And frankly, most Australians are unaware that this is a really transitional time. We'll look back at this period as quite important. And people miss the boat simply because the only reporting about the Pacific that happens in Australia is about the detention centres in Nauru and Manus. And that's about us. That's not about the Pacific. That's about our paranoia about boat people. That's about the Australian fetish with invasion from the north and so on, rather than any serious analysis about the needs of people in Nauru, the needs of people in Manus, uh, the needs of Pacific Islanders. And there's another group too, the Spearhead Group? Yeah, the Melanesian Spearhead Group, as the name suggests, links the Melanesian countries. These are the countries closest to the north and east of Australia, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, and also the FLNKS, the Independence Movement for New Caledonia. There's a separate group called the Polynesian Leaders Group, which is Surprise, surprise, Polynesian countries. Those are countries further to the east, like Tonga, Samoa, Cook Islands. There's also a Micronesian Chief Executive Summit, which is the Northern Pacific, um, Marshall Islands, FSM, Palau, and so on. And these sub-regional groupings have strengthened over the last decade, but particularly over the last five years, simply because the forum isn't addressing island-centred agendas in the way that many governments want. Um, they're still happy to come to the forum. Many leaders will be there uh, on the 7th of September in Ponape this year's meeting, uh, which I'll be reporting on. But uh, they feel that they can meet by themselves and drive the agenda around issues that, that they're particularly focused on. And as I say, climate change is, is the issue. It's one you can't fudge. You can't pretend that Australia and the Pacific are on the same side when it comes to the global negotiations. Indeed, Australia was actively campaigning against many of the positions that the Pacific governments and other small island developing states were putting forward during the Paris negotiations. Issues like loss and damage, issues like the priority given to adaptation uh, rather than mitigation, adaptations you know, adapting to the adverse effects of climate change, whereas mitigation is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, the Pacific doesn't generate greenhouse gas emissions except the odd cow. Their transport and energy sectors are tiny. Their main concern is adapting to extreme weather events, cyclones, sea level rise, the acidification of the ocean that's destroying the reef. That's where their priorities are, lie. Australia's interest is selling clean coal technology to China and India and other countries. And uh, there's a, a fundamental diversion of, of interest when it comes to climate negotiations. Where does West Papua come into the forum? This is a, an issue that has really provided a lot of complexity, indeed a lot of division within the forum and within the MSG, the Melanesian Spearhead Group. Since Indonesia took over what they call the provinces of Papua and West Papua uh, for the nationalist movement, West Papua, in the 1960s, it's created a split with fellow Melanesian nations, the line on the map between the independent nation of Papua New Guinea and the western half of the island of New Guinea under Indonesian control can't transcend it. And it's really important to remember that as the Dutch were moving out of what was called Dutch New Guinea in the colonial times, um, there was a push towards independence. The Morning Star flag, the symbol of independence for the West Papua nationalist movement, was first raised in December 1961. That was a time when decolonisation was on the international agenda. I mean, the first country to be independent in the Pacific was Samoa, Western Samoa, in 1962. So the West Papuans, in fact, were the first to raise their flag and say, we want our independence. But the New York Agreement in '62 scuttled that. The so-called Act of Free Choice in 1969 saw the Indonesians take over. So they wanted to be part of the Pacific at that time. The churches from West Papua 
attended the founding meeting of the Pacific Conference of Churches in 1961. There were West Papuans studying medicine at the Fiji School of Medicine in the 1960s. When I lived in Fiji, I was good friends with Dr. Welby Korwa, who was one of the West Papuans who'd been exiled from his own land because he was studying in the Pacific in the lead-up to independence. So that sense that West Papua is part of the Pacific is not a new thing. It's an old thing, and they feel that the Indonesian occupation and the ongoing human rights abuses by the police and the military and the generals and so on is a problem. It's a problem, however, for the Forum and for the MSG because Australia and Papua New Guinea for a long time have never wanted to offend Indonesia. PNG, because the Indonesians are on the border and indeed raid across the border um, when they get angry. Australia, because of its long-standing ties to Jakarta. And we saw with Timor-Leste, the opposition to independence in Timor. We see the same thing now with, you know, West Papua will never be independent, never be sovereign. Well, I said that about Timor. And so this is a dilemma. And some other Melanesian countries, particularly Vanuatu and uh, the Kanaks, the FLNKS, long supported uh, the West Papuans. Solomon Islands is now very active under Prime Minister Sogavari in support of the West Papuan cause. And so within the MSG there's been a huge debate and the United Liberation Movement of West Papua, a coalition of groups uh, from the nationalist movement, gained observer status at the uh, MSG in 2015 at the forum I was at in Honiara reporting uh, the Indonesians were there too and they got associate membership. So just as Indonesia is more active within the region and Fiji, as I said, looking for Indonesian support on the global stage, so the West Papuans have support within the region, particularly from Vanuatu, but now growing popular awareness. For the forum, it's a real dilemma. Australia and PNG are the biggest countries within the forum. They're very hostile to the notion of West Papuan independence and, uh, you know, they stress that Indonesia has sovereignty uh, over the place. Uh, Australians always say Indonesia's always had sovereignty, which is not true. I mean, the Dutch maintained sovereignty over New Guinea after Indonesian independence in the late 1940s and held it until the early 60s. People don't even know their history when they talk about Indonesia's always controlled this area. It's not true. And so this is a real dilemma, particularly for PNG, particularly for Australia. Once again, it's an issue that's dividing the forum and for 10 years, it wasn't on the agenda at the forum, and it's only come back on the agenda because of this ferment, popular ferment, and many community groups, civil society groups, have been pushing this issue. Um, the new Facebook generation that now have contacts within West Papua, uh, young people around the Pacific, particularly in Melanesia, have been demanding that the forum talk about this really important human rights issue for the region. It's not an issue that Malcolm Turnbull wants to talk about. What about the people of Nauru and... PNG, what are their feelings that you have been able to ascertain about the concentration camps that Australia has put on their lands? Look, it's quite mixed. One of the problems is that there hasn't been, say, particularly in Nauru, a particularly free debate about the question. You know, at the end of the 90s, Nauru, which had never really taken overseas aid from other countries, had always had its revenues from mining phosphate. They had a huge portfolio of property and things like that. And that money was mismanaged by a generation of incompetent and or corrupt politicians. And so when John Howard first proposed the so-called Pacific Solution, that Australia would pour buckets of money into Nauru and in turn they would host the detention centres for offshore processing, that's been amongst many elite members of the Nauruan elite uh, a, a goldmine. I mean, Nauru charges visa fees, thousands of dollars a month, for every asylum seeker 
And given there's hundreds of people there, that's quite a lot of money flowing into Nauru's coffers for hosting the things, beyond the obvious spin-offs with, um, you know, supply of food, money going to the hospital, money going to that. At the same time, it's an enormous burden. It's a country of only 10,000 people, and privately people will gripe about the situation, see it as Australian heavy-handedness. So there's this real dichotomy in the community. It's provided jobs, and people are worried if the centres close down again, as they did in 2008, what's it going to mean for employment? Uh, What's it going to mean for money? So some people are raking in quite a bit of dough out of this whole process. People whose land the camps are on are charging landowners rents and things like that, so they quite like the whole business. Other people who haven't benefited or who've seen, for example, the cost of housing skyrocket because of the pressure with a lot of guards and other people living in the community and things like that. So there's been real damage to many poor and grassroots now ruins from this whole process. Same sort of thing in Manus. At one sense, it's like a river of gold. You know, Australia spent $2 billion on the camp in Manus. $2 billion, that's an awful lot of money. So there's a whole lot of people, once again, who hoped that they might get some benefit out of that. Uh, villagers who live in Lorengau, the main town in, in the province of Manus, uh, who might get jobs, who might get subcontracting. And one of the gripes has been that uh, PNG small business, who might get a contract to run the computer maintenance or might get uh, you know, uh, food supply contracts or other you know, drivers and things like that, they're very angry that a lot of contracts have gone to Australian subcontractors. And you've had uh, what used to be Transurban, now called Broad Spectrum. I mean, they changed their branding because they were so on the nose about their role in the camps. They've made a mint out of the Australian taxpayer as this process has evolved. But we knew it would end in tears. We knew it was a disaster not only for the people who've been left in limbo for years and suffered enormous trauma and psychological as well as physical trauma, but for people who've been affected by the presence of the camps. And Australia is desperately scrabbling to find a way to resolve this problem, given that the PNG Supreme Court has ruled that it's illegal and unconstitutional. And we've known this from day one. I wrote a report in 2002 called Adrift in the Pacific, Australia's Climate Change Policy, and noted in there that Section 42 of the PNG Constitution says you can't detain people unless they've been charged with a criminal offence, and anyone who's detained has the right to independent legal counsel. So it's been clear from that case, that time, that jailing asylum seekers behind wire, not giving them the right to free and independent legal advice, and not charging them with any criminal offence, it's not criminal to apply for, for refugee status, it's a breach of the Constitution. In 2004, Patrick Harrigan, a lawyer in Port Moresby, lodged a case before the PNG courts, and it was wending its way through the courts when the camps were closed under the Rudd government in 2008. When the camps were reopened under the Gillard government, the case was relodged, and that's why it's taken time once again to get all its way through the courts. And surprise, surprise, the Supreme Court of PNG found that this was a breach of the PNG constitution. And for months, Peter Dutton, our immigration minister, has been refusing to abide by the ruling of the highest court in the land, a full bench ruling. But for Peter O'Neill, the PNG Prime Minister, it's a real dilemma. The case was brought by the PNG opposition. Belden Nama, the opposition leader, lodged the case against the PNG Cabinet, the National Executive Council. So here, the PNG opposition taking on the government in the Supreme Court and winning. You can understand why Peter O'Neill doesn't want to go to PNG elections next year, refusing to obey his own Supreme Court when the opposition won the case. Like, 
And people in Australia don't re- quite realise the significance of this court ruling. You know, Peter Dutton's managed since the ruling in April to fudge the issue, but now the elections are out of the way, PNG is saying, come on, guys, we have to sort this out. We're going to elections next year. We want this resolved. And the Supreme Court says you can't just change the law. You tried that in 2014. This is illegal. This is unconstitutional. So will Australia try and bully the PNG Supreme Court? Good luck. Um, so, you know, I think that the denial in Australia about the significance of how ordinary people feel that their governance, their institutions, their legal system, their rule of law is just ignored or trashed by these sort of policies, you should not underestimate the resentment that that creates. Is it time for Australia to leave the forum? Well, there are people saying that. Frank Bainimarama says that quite openly. And it's a dilemma. You know, when I've interviewed leaders of the forum, President of Kiribati, uh, outgoing uh, Onoti Tong and others, They've said they quite like the forum because it's a place where they can sit as equals around the table with Australia and New Zealand, who are key players in the region, and always will be. We're bound together by geography, you know, by history. We're next to each other. Yeah, but so, they're not equals. But they're not equals politically, militarily, and so on. But they are equal around the table. It operates you know, by consensus, and uh, that's the battle. But isn't there a lot of bargaining going on in the background? Of course there's bargaining in the background, and Australia throws its weight round with aid and so on. But see, we're cutting our aid budget. We've cut $1.2 billion from the aid budget in the last two budgets. We are at the lowest level of overseas aid. So there's only so much aid to throw around, say, to resolve the refugee problem. And if we're going to be paying PNG millions of dollars, as we are, to resell the refugees, where's that money coming from? Well, Australian taxpayers, ultimately. But is it coming out of the aid budget? Pacific leaders like a place where they can meet, where they can talk. They created a forum to talk about the issues that concerned them in 1971 because the old South Pacific Commission, which included the colonial powers like France and the United States, wouldn't allow discussion about issues like nuclear testing and wouldn't allow discussions about self-determination and independence. So they set up their own forum where they could have that discussion. Now there's a growing sentiment that they can't have the discussions they want to have within the Pacific Islands Forum because Australia will move against their interests. And so people have quite openly talked about Australia being kicked out. I don't think that's going to happen quickly. But there's certainly a suggestion that Australia and New Zealand should change their standing. The former Fiji Foreign Minister, Kaliopati Tavola, talked about instead of all sitting around a round table, let's have a rectangular table with Australia and New Zealand on one side and the 14 island states on the other side. It's a recognition of that imbalance of power, of economic weight, Um, We're all still round the table together talking about issues, but there's a recognition that Australia and New Zealand's interests and strategy is in many issues different to that of our island neighbours. We may see a change. In the past, there was no alternative for the Pacific. Australia, New Zealand, France, the United States were the biggest donors, were the biggest economic powers, were the biggest military players, but the world's changing. And we've seen, as we've talked about on the program before, we've seen the rise of Asia and many Asian countries, not just China, but Indonesia, Korea, Malaysia, being more interested in investing in the Pacific. Um, you see banks now, the Bank of Baroda and others from India. The Chinese Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank now provides a source of funds for investment for infrastructure rather than relying on the Pacific Regional Infrastructure Facility, which is a body that's bankrolled by the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank and Australia. The Chinese now got their own infrastructure bank, so you could get infrastructure from China rather than from Australia and, 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 the, and the ADB. It's a changing world. 
And I think Fiji exemplifies that. You know, Bainimarama was out in the cold for very good reason because of the human rights abuses in Fiji under his regime. But during that time, Fiji really transformed its foreign policy. It joined the non-aligned movement, joined the G77 plus China, and indeed became president of the G77 in uh, 2013. It's now got the presidency of the UN uh, General Assembly on behalf of the Asia-Pacific Group, remembering, of course, that Australia and New Zealand are members of the Western European and Others Group, (laughs) one of the great legacies of colonialism. We're not even in the Asia Group within the UN. So these changes are happening around us, and I don't think Australians quite get it. They think of Pacific Islanders as victims or as corrupt. You know, they look at the Nauruan elite and think all Pacific leaders are corrupt. They think of the climate change damage that's being done and they think of Pacific Islanders as victims. One of the things at the Forum is Pacific Islanders have very clear agendas and they want Australians to do that. One of the big calls that's coming out, not only from the Pacific but from New Zealand, is to remove fossil fuel subsidies. Why are we subsidising fossil fuel industries when it's clear that they're part of the problem rather than part of the solution to climate change. And that's a growing demand that's coming up and it will be aired at this meeting. Now, the Turnbull government, is not, it's not on their agenda as one of the first things they'll do with one-seat majority in Parliament to start cutting fossil fuel subsidies. So I think this gap will grow in the next few years rather than shrink, despite uh, an improvement since uh, the decline of Tony Abbott and the, the removal of Tony Abbott. You know, Abbott's gone, but the people who put him there are still in the... Coalition Cabinet. Will Malcolm go? And if he doesn't go, does that matter? Meeting starts in Ponape in the Federated States of Micronesia on uh, September the 7th, which is a week after Parliament starts. Traditionally, uh, the leader goes, and we do have a very nice RAAF jet that can fly uh, that distance reasonably quickly and fly back the next night. Have uh, you booked your suit? Um, unfortunately, I haven't been invited onto the plane. I have to fly to the Philippines, fly to Guam, and then get the midnight shuttle to, to Ponape to get there. He may bring uh, media. Well, I was at the Palau Forum, another small Micronesian country in 2014, and Warren Truss came. Abbott didn't come to that forum in Palau. Um, he went last year to Port Moresby, but didn't come. Warren Truss arrived with not one Australian journalist. People weren't interested. What's Palau? What's that got to do with us? You know, if it's in PNG, yes, you can go because it's our old colonial possession. Um, but there was no Australian media came, uh, no reporters came with uh, Warren Trust to the Palau Forum. So there won't be a huge media contingent. And Turnbull, given the Labor Party saying they won't give pairs to, <laughs> to people as payback for what happened during the Gillard government, we'll see. My suspicion is that. If Turnbull comes, it'll be literally a flying visit for a day. More likely Julie Bishop or um, Connie Ferravanti-Wells, who's the Minister for International Development in the Pacific, will be there um, as a senator. She's, uh, you know, Her numbers aren't as vital as they are in the House, so I suspect we'll see Senator Ferravanti-Wells uh, there for a few days and either the Prime Minister or the Foreign Minister will make a flying visit to attend the actual leaders' retreat, which is the one-day retreat where the... Uh, leaders with only one or two officials sit around the table um, and have a free and frank discussion amongst themselves without any public uh, ceremony. Well, make sure you don't get sunburned. It's likely to rain. People have this image that we're sitting under the palm trees. In fact, it's quite hard work, these forum meetings. Uh, uh, You sort of sit around waiting for the communique all day and then uh, spend all night typing up your story and getting them up on the web uh, and start again the next day. So um, not a lot of time for rest and relaxation, let me tell you. Well, I hope he gets some. That's researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. And we'll be hearing from him after 
the South Pacific Islands Forum. The Pacific Islands Forum. It used to be South Pacific, now it's Pacific. That's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Done by law, just coming up very soon. Bye for now.